All right, welcome for the second time. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are going to be looking at uh, the first five verses, although we're going to read this whole passage. We're going to be in chapter 5 this week and next week. And the title is The Healing Wounds of Love. The Healing Wounds of Love. You know, love, love wounds. And I was, at times, I was thinking about this proverb, uh, Proverbs 27, 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And when you really love somebody, you tell them the truth. Um, you do it in as gentle a way as possible. Um, people matter. So we're going to be looking at a, at a passage here this morning that is actually, I'll just tell you, it's one of the passages that many Christian churches just plainly dismiss. It's one of those things that, that Christians read and just go, I ain't doing that. There are tons of churches who read this passage and just say, yeah, yeah, that's too harsh. That's too difficult. We are, we're, not, we're just not going to do that. And uh, they just feel like it's unthinkable that we would be involved in somebody's life the way God tells us to in this situation. Um, I've also seen this passage. We're going to be talking about there, there's a man in sin, and we'll read the passage in a moment. There's a man in sin living in gross sin in the church, and Paul actually tells the church to get together and in a public gathering, remove this person from the church. Tell them they can't come back. And so we're going to read this passage and kind of see um, how that works its way out. Um, I've also seen um, churches take this passage and they use it as an excuse to abuse people. Uh, there, there are church leaders that um, they, don't, they don't use, they, they don't do the things that the Bible says. They don't do that in a healthy, loving, faithful way to people with compassion and with an understanding that God owns the church. Man, this church, it, it does not belong to us. It does not belong to the elders. This is God's church. And there are many leaders who take the things that the Bible says about God, obedience, following, all those kinds of things, and they take the things that, the attitude that people are supposed to have toward God, and they say, this is the attitude you should have toward me. And there's a lot of churches that are sinfully abusive in how they deal with people. And that's something that we need to take seriously and make sure we never do. There are passive churches that, that people just go off into an eternity without Christ. People's lives are destroyed because of sin. And there's nobody that loves them enough to step into their life the way God says to. Now, one of the things I think is interesting is uh, we've been talking about this. We talked about it last week. But the church is like a family. There are many families that face the same destruction, that face the same difficulties, because mom and dad, who are supposed to be leading their family the way God says to lead the family, don't do it. Uh, so many parents are afraid to hurt their kids' feelings. They are afraid to step in in a meaningful, significant way. And because of that, kids just run down a road to destruction. And so we're going to look at this passage this week and next week, and we're going to kind of think about these things. And so um, let me start by, we're going to basically cover two things. The first thing is this, and we'll see this in verse 1 and 2, that sin requires intervention. When people are struggling in sin, it requires intervention. And I just want you to know, if you are sinning in your life, you should do something about that. 
being careless with sin in your life is terrible. And if you are serious about dealing with sin in your own life, then you will be good at helping other people deal with sin in their life. The second thing is that the purpose of intervention is restoration and healing. Um, some people don't understand punishment. They don't understand discipline. And, and there are many people, as they think about their Christian life, as they think about parenting, as they think about um, being involved in people's lives in the church, is they have a misunderstanding of punishment. And they think that to step into somebody's life is to make them hurt, to make them suffer, to pay them back for what they've done. You've done this wrong thing. Now you need to suffer for that. That is never the purpose of parental discipline. That is never the purpose of any kind of discipline that happens in the church. Um, Discipline has one purpose, and that is restoration and healing. And so we need to keep that in mind. That's a framework for us to think about. Now, about the Corinthian church, they struggled with a lack of unity, right? They were fighting about who was the greatest. They were following this person and following that person, and they were teaming up with one person against another person in the church. You know, as Christians, none of us are against another person ever. We are always for people. And even if somebody, if we're struggling with somebody, we still love them. No person in the church, no brother, sister in Christ is ever our enemy. And so we, we love people. And this, this church, it's interesting. They were spiritually unfaithful. And what that meant is that they were fighting about the wrong things. But spiritual unfaithfulness, it leads to the wrong kind of conflict, but it also leads to the wrong kind of love. It's actually not biblical love. It it leads to the wrong kind of unity. Spiritual unfaithfulness doesn't address sin. It is not willing to wound somebody for their well-being. Spiritual unfaithfulness will not separate from somebody because of bad doctrine. You know, there's this idea of, hey, we love and accept everyone here. So when people believe things that are untrue, that are spiritually damaging, oh, hey, we don't want to be judgmental. And so um, unspirituality, spiritual unfaithfulness leads to division that shouldn't be there, and it leads to unity that shouldn't be there. And so when you're spiritually faithful, (laughs) you'll have unity You'll be loving, you will be gracious, you will be merciful. And you will also stand against things that destroy other people, that destroy churches, and that destroy families. So let me read this passage, and then we'll spend a couple weeks on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought not you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
So we'll focus on that this week. And let's go on and read the rest of the chapter, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, as our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Um, that's a pretty powerful passage, right? Um, it's not a surprise that there are a lot of churches who just say, yeah, <laughs> I actually don't really care what God says where I'm not doing that. There are plenty of Christian parents who read some of the things that God says and just go, yeah, I don't care what God says. I'm not doing that. So what's the most basic thing about being a Christian? Like coming to Christ, right? So you understand the gospel. You understand that you're a sinner, that Jesus died for you, that you are not saved by any good works that you do. And so we come to Christ and we submit to, to God as the Lord of our life. You know, it says that in Romans 10, 9, and 10, right? If anyone confesses Jesus as Lord. And what did Jesus say when people were coming to him? He just said, hey, um, you've got to hate your mother, father, father, brothers, sisters, and even your own life, or you cannot be my disciple. Coming to Christ is to realize I'm a sinner. I am broken. The way that I think about things isn't right. Everything that God says is good and true. And when I recognize that, I am going to obey God. I am going to trust God. I am going to know that when he tells me to do something, it is best for me and it is best for everyone else. Like that's actually the foundation of being a Christian. And I think often we'll come back to this in a moment, but I think often the reason that we go wrong in the church and the reason that the church is not faithful and the reason that we don't disciple people correctly and the reason that we don't live correctly is because we, we have this faulty understanding of the gospel. And we think that coming to Christ is like, I live my own selfish, rebellious life. I don't need to repent. I don't need to turn away from sin. When I come to Christ, I'm not saved by works. And so that, what that means is I do whatever I want, and God's like Santa Claus in the sky. I live my life in disobedience of God. I live my life doing whatever I want. And while I sin and then really bad things happen to me, I'm going to be mad at God. How could I be so miserable in my marriage? How could I be having this problem in my life? God, this isn't fair. And we've trained people up to just say, oh, no, you're not saved by works, which is true. Therefore, 
live however you want, do whatever you want, and then be mad at God when you're suffering. Um, that's actually a misunderstanding of the gospel. And so those are, that, that's one of the things that we think about this. And Paul starts this whole thing with the Corinthian church, talking about what it means to be saved. He tells them they're saints. And that means that their standing before God is not based on their works. But he tells them also that a natural man, an unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit, their foolishness. But a spiritual man, a person whose heart has been regenerated, understands, accepts, and embraces what God says. And so that's what it comes down to as we think about this. Let's consider verse 1 and 2. First thing in verse 1, sin requires intervention. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Okay, now this is an interesting thing as you think about this passage. There are two significant sins in this passage that require intervention. You want to know what those two significant sins are? Well, one is this man who's living with his, um, who's, who has his father's wife. That's one huge sin that has to be dealt with. You want to know what the other huge sin is that has to be dealt with? The church. And guess who's intervening? Paul. Remember, he's been intervening all through this chapter about the sin that he hears with them and how he ends chapter 4 by saying, I am coming, and when I come, if you don't deal with these sin things in your life, I'm going to come with a rod. Let me come in mercy and in love and with kindness. Let, Let us have a good meeting. But if I show up, and as a church, you have disregarded what I've told you to do, I am coming with a rod. And then he tells the church, you have been ignoring what God has called you to do, and he gives them an instruction, remove this person from the church. So he's confronting the church because of their sin, and they're supposed to address this man because of his sin. So when we think about this, this situation should never exist. When you think about the purpose of the church, um, how do we address this? Remember Ephesians 4.15, it says as a church that we speak the truth in love and that every single person in the body of Christ, we're speaking to each other, we're using our spiritual gifts. How is it that a person ends up living with his mother-in-law, showing up, in, or not his mother-in-law, but living with his stepmom, most likely, we'll talk about that shortly, But how is it that that happens, that it's public, that it's all over the church, and nobody says anything? Um, That's a church not functioning correctly. That's a church not training people up from the time that they're young. that's That's a church that when this man came to Christ, nobody sat with them and said, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is how you live. Do you remember what Jesus said about sin? He says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pull it out. Because it's better that you should enter life blind than to um, spend forever separated from God. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Like that's how serious Jesus is about sin. And this guy, as he's living his life and just disregarding the things that God said, number one, maybe he doesn't know what God says, in which case the church has really fallen down. Or number two, as he lives a life of sinfulness, 
Nobody's coming and talking to him. Nobody is challenging him. Nobody is saying, you can't live this way. Um, so that shouldn't happen. You think about Matthew 18, right? Um, Jesus actually gives instructions on how we deal with things. It says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know, in a sense, this whole concept of church discipline, you know, that's supposed to be happening all the time. That's what we do in our families. That's what we do in the church. I remember my kids, my kids would come tattle. They, they would run to me and they would say, um, hey, uh, so-and-so hit me. So-and-so took my toy. So, so-and-so did this. Okay, so they confronted that person. Don't take my toy. They did it anyway. And then what I would always tell them is I would say, don't come with me and tell me that your sibling hit you. Don't come here and tell me that they, that they took something they should, that they shouldn't have t- taken. Bring them with you. And so let's all talk about what happened. So my kids couldn't tattle. If they wanted to come tell me something happened, they had to bring their friend, or their sibling. Why? Because we talk to other people. We gather people together to help so we can be sure about what actually happened. Remember one time Julianne, she's, I won't, I won't tell the whole story, but Julianne's in junior high. And this kid in youth group did, said something really mean to her. So she's a, she's a seventh grade student. This boy says something really mean that hurts her feelings. And she comes home and she's like, man, this kid talked to me, he said this, he did this. And I said, okay. So what does the Bible say you're supposed to do? It says you're supposed to go to him. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to call his house. If you, when you talk to his mom, don't tell his mom what happened or his dad or whoever answers the phone. You were going to ask to talk to him. And then I just coached her through how that conversation was going to go. You're going to tell him what he did. He's going to blow it off and say, I don't care that you're being oversensitive. And in which case, if that's how he responds, here's how you should respond to that. Or he's going to tell you he's sorry. And if he says sorry, here's how God says you're supposed to respond to that. So here the seventh grade girl is calling some ninth grade boy to talk to him about what he did. I didn't go to the parents and say, what are you doing? How come your son's treating my kid this way? Why? That's not how the Bible says we handle things. And so in our families, from the time our kids are young, we are just training them to be Christians so that when they're in the church and something happens, they do the things that God says they're supposed to do. When a person becomes a new Christian, they come to you and they say, oh, so-and-so did this and -and so-and-so did that. We say, okay, go talk to that person. So in the, in the body of Christ, we're supposed to be training people to go after people who are struggling. And that didn't happen in this church. You know, um, this church, he goes on, it's kind of crazy. He says, it's actually reported there's sexual, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. You know, the church... The Bible says you, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city cannot be hidden. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gets, gives light to all. And then look at how this passage ends. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So the church failed to train people about what it means to be a Christian. You live a righteous, holy, faithful life. What this man's doing, the culture wouldn't even put up with, and it's in the church. What kind of message does that send about the transforming grace and power of Jesus, about what, what righteousness looks like, about what it looks like to obey Jesus. You know, you think about Psalm 1 in Matthew chapter 5, where it just says, if you obey God, you'll be blessed. What kind of message does it send to the world when people who say they're Christians live in sin? And, and it's different. Hey, we all struggle with sin, right? Like every time I address sin in my kid's life, like they were mean to their sibling, I would just say to them, yeah, um, this is totally inappropriate. It's sinful. It's terrible. This is how God says you're supposed to treat each other. And then I would say, you remember yesterday when me and mom got in that fight and how I was talking to mom and how she was talking to me? That was also sinful. So you're not the only one that struggles with sin. We all do. But when we sin, this is what God says we're supposed to do. This is how we handle it. Sometimes I would, if in my marriage I said something to Michelle or treated her in a way that was inappropriate, I would apologize to her, but actually not just to her. I would actually get everybody in the room who was there when it happened, and I would say, Michelle, I'm really sorry for how I talked to you. And kids, I'm really sorry for how I talked to your mom. And so part of all of this stuff and the picture of the world, the church is not a place pretending that everything is perfect. Uh, The church and Christians are a place who model what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to deal with sin in our life when it happens, what it means to actually live out faithful Christianity. And yet that's certainly not happening in this case. How about this? 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from wickedness. You know, this is one of the things I think about. We blow it in our gospel presentations often because when we're talking to people who have big sin issues in our life, here's how the logic goes. Um, Fixing people's sin problems is not the purpose of the church. So, so you go to somebody who's living in sexual immorality, and, and we're not trying to get people to clean up their life. So all you do is say, hey, you got to move out. You shouldn't be living with somebody you're not married to. You shouldn't be living a homosexual lifestyle. You shouldn't be uh, pursuing, you know, changing your gender or whatever. And, and as though if we could get people not to do that, they'd be okay. Because if a person is living that kind of sin and they stop living that kind of sin, they're not saved. The, the salvation comes from recognizing who Jesus is, for confessing our sin, receiving God's forgiveness and mercy and spiritual transformation. And we may go on in our life 
struggling with sinful desires, struggling to try to change sinful behavior, having internal you know, turmoil that comes from a fallen nature and that comes from, from, fallen, from living in a fallen world and thinking improperly. And so it's like we struggle as Christians. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7, verse 14 to 28. I don't do the things that I want to do. I find myself doing things I hate. Like that's part of the Christian experience. And so what we do often is we say to people, oh, this sin issue isn't actually what separates you from God, so I'm just going to share the gospel with you. And we won't talk about the sin issues in your life. Um, That is a huge mistake. It is not what God tells us to do. It is not how um, the gospel is represented in Scripture. So this couple comes to me, asks me to do their wedding ceremony, and pregnant lady living with a guy who's not a Christian and um, who, and obviously they're living in sin. So talked to him, said, yeah, I, I can't do that because this, this lady says she's a Christian. And if she says she's a Christian, it's actually a sin to marry you. So can't do the wedding. And then just talk with them, share the gospel with them. It was interesting Because the guy prays to receive Christ. He's like, yeah, I'm a sinner, and I want to become a Christian. Now, that's very complicated, right? I won't do your wedding ceremony because you're not a Christian, and she is. Okay, (laughs) what do I need to say to be a Christian? Now will you do the wedding? Like, do you understand how all those things get complicated? How we need to be so careful in how we do those things? But this was the thing that was amazing. Is So in that conversation, I just said to him, okay, so... um, and this girl's been raised in church. And I just said, uh, so she's, she's like living in sin, rebelling against God. So I share the gospel, and um, I say, um, so what are you, I'm just curious, what are you going to do? I mean, you say you want to be a Christian. We go over all that stuff. And I said, well, how about the fact that you're living with somebody you're not married to? Like, like what are you going to do about that? And the girl's response is to say, well, you know, I'm already pregnant and we're just going to get married soon. You know what he said? He looks at her and he goes, no way. God says this is wrong. We're not doing it. And I said, well, you guys are living together. Like, what are you going to do? He's like, I don't know. And he says to one of the other guys in the room, a relative was there. He says, can I, can I spend the night with you tonight? It's like, he's not even going to go home. He's going to just obey. So you're sharing the gospel with people living together. Yeah, they're not saved by whether or not they live together. But the very first thing you'd say is, what are you going to do about where you're living tonight? You're, living, you're sharing the gospel with somebody struggling with homosexuality or any other kind of sin. Very first thing you do, I want to be a Christian. Okay, what are you going to do about this relationship that you're in? Because God says it's wrong. And so it's not that works justify us or that we're trying to clean up people's lives. But if a person is a Christian... They will be committed to obeying Jesus. There will be nothing that they wouldn't be willing to do. Uh, what happened with Zacchaeus, right? He, hears, he, he comes to see Jesus. He comes to meet him. Jesus goes to his house. And what does he do? He says, I'm selling half of everything I have and giving it to the poor, and I'm going to repay four times everybody I've defrauded. That is his first reaction. And so here's the issue. 
It's not that cleaning up people's lives is our goal or our purpose. Yes, we want people to live righteously. But if a person says, I want to be a Christian, and if a person truly is a Christian, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but that God makes us alive. How do you know if a person's alive? It's very simple, very easy. John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll obey me. Huge difference. Struggling with sin, having internal desires. Like share the gospel with somebody who's an alcoholic. You know, they've <laughs> been drinking for years. They're physically, chemically dependent. And you say, become a Christian. Man, they got, they got this huge thing that with all of their heart, they may want to stop drinking. And that's such a habit, and they have so much difficulty. And for some people, if they just quit drinking, they'll die. So a person with an alcohol, who's an alcoholic may still struggle, but you want to know what the very first thing they'll do is? Um, okay, where's a program? Where can I go get help? How can I get this out of my life? How can I surround myself? When they blow it, they'll confess the sin. They'll repent. They'll say, hey, I messed up. Somebody come help me. And when people aren't living that way, that's an expression of the fact that they're not Christians. And I am not saying that Christians don't struggle with sin. I mean, we all do, all the time. So this church has failed to interact in this person's life in that way. They are not loving and encouraging each other. They are devouring and biting each other. They're fighting about stupid things, so they're not addressing the serious spiritual issues in their church. So what happened with this guy? Well, it says that it's a man who has his father's wife, and then later in the passage it talks about um, fornication. And so it's probably not his natural mother. Uh, probably his mom died or something like that. His dad got remarried. And, and then it, the fact that it uses the term fornication instead of adultery, uh, maybe this is his father's, his, his father's uh, step, you know, his stepmother or his father's second wife. And then maybe his dad died or maybe there was some kind of a divorce that was a biblical divorce. Who knows? But he's living with his, his father's wife. And then verse 2, here's the problem in the church. It just says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let who is, he who has done this be removed from among you. Now, this is one of the things I think is kind of funny. It's not funny. It's, it's not funny, ha-ha. It's funny, sad. It's funny, odd. It's funny, why would anybody do this? You know what I think is amazing? Paul's going to say, you need to remove this person from your midst. You need to put them out into the world. Uh, spiritually speaking, there he's being turned over to Satan for the destruction of his body. And um, think about how many people in church do that to themselves, where they just say, "Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm just not going to go to church." It's like how many? It's like <laughs> this is like like it calls for severe action. Tell the guy he can't come to church. There's tons of people who just don't go. Um, people, what I think is crazy is people who function in positions of spiritual leadership, they leave one church and then they just don't go to church. Like that communicates a serious misunderstanding of, of what it means to be a spiritual leader and how significant the body of Christ is. One of the things I think about with Jackson, you know, he just moved to Virginia. 
one of the things that is the most important for him is that he get plugged into a faithful church, that he get to know people, that every single week he's, being, he's hearing God's word, that he's being trained. Why? Because if he's not there, he's going to forget what it means to be a Christian. Satan's going to be attacking him. He's going to get misled by thinking when all you hear is lies and you never hear the truth. And when you, when you don't walk into a room, had a friend, he was a pastor and ended up quit going to church. He ends up being, having all kinds of issues in his life, three divorces, all kinds of sin things in his life. And I remember I went and visited him when he was in the middle of the sin stuff. And I just said to him, you know, it's weird because all the stuff I would say to you, you're the one who taught me to say. Like I worked under him in ministry in my early years. And the kind of things that I hear, heard him say, it's like that is such wrong thinking. And it's because he'd been in the world. And now all of a sudden compromise and sin seems normal because everybody he's around is doing it. If you think you're getting nothing out of church on Sunday morning, you're still hearing what God says. You're being reminded about what's true. If you think you're getting nothing out of Sunday morning, you still show up and you sit in a a room with a bunch of people who are not living in rebellion against God. And so you're reminded, this is what God says, and actually there are some people around me who actually live like that. And um, so some people, they, they do that. They remove God's influence from their lives. This passage, by the way, is not something any Christian should be afraid of. This is one of the most important reasons to become a member is so that this kind of thing will happen to you. Like I think about that. If, if someday something happens with me and Michelle and, and, or one of my kids and they, they fall into sin and they're feeling trapped and they start running away, I want tons of people to be able to reach out to them, to reach into their life, to call them. One of the things I think about is that my kids have lifelong friendships with faithful Christians. And so the Christians hopefully in their life right now, but the Christians that were their Sunday school teachers when they were two, three, eight, nine, they're youth leaders, they're youth pastors. They have very close relationships with those people. And if one of my kids started walking in sin, I would be the first one to call them and say, what are you doing? You need to get your life right. And then if they weren't listening to me, I would make phone calls to everybody who is spiritually significant in their life. I would call their Sunday school teachers that I know that they really liked and that had a good connection. I would call their youth pastor that discipled them or their old youth leader, and I would say, this is what my kid's doing. Call them. Pray for them. Plead with them. And if, and if my kids are off in a church somewhere and they start walking in sin, I would be praying God, help the Christians in their life to confront them. Help somebody to go. And if my kid called me and said, this person was such a jerk, you, you won't believe what they said to me. They said this, this, and this. First of all, I would expect them to be misrepresenting the conversation. Right. And secondly, I would be so thankful that, that as my kids are walking off a cliff that somebody is talking to them. And yet we have churches and we have people who live their life in a, in a way that when they walk off into sin or when somebody uh, in their family walks in, off into sin, they've broken every relational connection. There's no one to speak into their life. Uh, they, people leave a church and they don't become a member of another church. So now when they walk into sin, who's responsible to go after them? Well, like their, their last church? Yeah, in a sense, Christians should reach out. But are those leaders accountable 
to go address this sin. Like, we don't do that, right? Like, I don't just walk around RSM and find people to hold accountable. I mean, certainly I'd have a personal conversation with anyone who said they were a Christian. But we're not going to go out there and respond to some random person in, in Rancho Santa Margarita the way we would somebody who is a part of our church family. And um, so it's crazy that so many Christians are so unhealthy that they don't develop the kind of things that will keep them on the right path. They don't have the kind of relationships with people that will rescue them when they're in trouble. You know, they were arrogant. Paul says they're arrogant. They just disregarded what Jesus said, Matthew 18. Go sin. If they don't listen, bring other people. If they don't listen to them, tell the whole church. And if they don't listen to the whole church, treat them like a tax gatherer or a Gentile. And people, it's amazing what people do with that phrase to kind of make that meaningless. It fits into exactly what's being talked about here in 1 Corinthians 5, where it says, remove them from your midst and don't even eat with them. And they thought that was loving, but Romans 12, 9 says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. You know, when you think about Matthew 18, that's not this harsh passage. It starts in the beginning of Matthew chapter 18. It starts by saying, Jesus just, or God, uh, Jesus just saying, if people have a sheep and one wanders away, they leave everybody else and go get that one who's wandering. That's what Matthew 18 starts with. And then Matthew 18 ends with a story about forgiveness, where Peter says, how many times am I supposed to forgive my friend? Somebody who sins against me, seven times? And God says, no, 70 times seven. The whole point of this kind of interaction is people's spiritual well-being. It is rescue. And instead, they should have been mourning instead of being arrogant. Why do you think they should have mourned? You know, they should have mourned because of that person's broken relationship with God. You call yourself a believer, you're going to commit that sin. You know what that does in your heart? You know how that separates you from God? You think about uh, David when he sinned with Bathsheba, and, he's, and you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, and, and David just says, man, your hand was heavy on me. My, my strength was just sapped away like, like I was laying in the desert. Man, he was in such internal torment until he confessed his sin. And then, then it was all gone and he was forgiven. He talked about the blessing of that. When we see people walking in sin, are we brokenhearted because of the sin and destruction and internal pain that they're dealing with? Which, by the way, if you're a Christian, that is what happens to you when you sin. People who sin and are happy are not Christians. But a, a Christian who sins has the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They are internally in pain. And, and there's often a lot of people who, as they sin, <laughs> their sin just brings pain in their life, so they're also miserable. You know, um, that's destructive. You should mourn because of the natural consequences of sin. Somebody runs off, has an affair, uh, destroys their marriage, their kids are harmed and damaged, just natural consequences. We should be brokenhearted over that. We should be brokenhearted over God's discipline. The Bible says that God disciplines the people that he loves. And we know that when a, sin, when a Christian walks into sin, God's discipline will follow. We should be brokenhearted over that. The second thing, sin requires intervention. And the purpose of intervention is 
restoration. Look at this. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if pre- as if present, I have already pronounced judgment. You know, you've always heard, uh, judge not lest you be judged. Christians shouldn't judge. We don't make people perform or obey us. Oh, I, I don't like that style of dress. You shouldn't wear that. Uh, you know, I've decided that drinking isn't right. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin, but I've just decided that people on a high spiritual plane don't do that. We don't judge people about things that God hasn't said. But it is not judgmental to say what God says. You know, these people are living in sin, but who am I to judge? It's not you judging. It's what God says is right and wrong, and we just tell the truth about what God says. It's not being judgmental. It's being spiritually faithful. So he says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is something that the whole church is supposed to do. Everybody prays. Everybody goes after people who are lost. In in the name of the Lord Jesus, we speak on Jesus' behalf. And my spirit is present. And with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The purpose is restoration. And when a person says, rationalizes to themselves, no, my sin's okay, I can do this and still be a Christian, like their mind, sin damages people, it damages their, their thinking. And so when the whole body of Christ says, actually, you can't go here, like that communicates, we don't tell anybody they can't come to church. You can be a terrible person and you can come to church. We welcome people with problems. It, it doesn't matter what kind of sin is in your life, you're welcome here. And so when you look at somebody and say, you may think you're okay, you're actually not allowed to come to church, that sends a message to them. I'm in trouble. And then what does it do for the rest of the church? Hey, this is a serious sin issue. I should deal with that. What does it do for the world? It communicates what it means to be a Christian and what it means to not be a Christian. And so it's not so that we can be prideful and arrogant and judgmental. Remember the Pharisee? He says, uh, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, that's, that has nothing to do with what God wants in the church. I'm really good and you're really bad. It's Galatians 6.1. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you be tempted. You know, this is a really important issue and it's something that often is neglected and I think as we think about this there's clear instructions somebody says they're a Christian and they live in open rebellion um, you say no that is not how a Christian lives by the way this this type of response to a person never happens because of a, a, an incident of sin if this guy slept with his his father's wife <laughs> you would not say you're getting kicked out Like when somebody does something, no matter how bad it is, we don't kick people out because they blow it. But when a person says, I know God says this is wrong, but I don't agree with God. I'm going to do it anyway. That's not how a Christian responds. If a person says, "Um, I I actually don't care what God says about whether or not it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, That's not how a Christian lives. So when you call yourself a Christian and you live in hard-hearted rebellion over a period of time, well, the Bible says remove that person. And uh, we live in, in such a weak 
Christian culture with people that they are judgmental, they are prideful, and they are harsh about things that don't matter. Somebody shows up late to church, we give them a bad look. Somebody does something we don't like and we're against them. But when it comes to sin issues, the church can be like the Corinthian church where they actually don't care what God says. They just want to feel like nice people. And so they ignore what God says people are supposed to do for the well-being of others. Hebrews 12 tells us this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. We go after people. We, rec- we, we want people reconciled, and we do it for their good. And that's that we need to pray that God will make us a loving, gracious, merciful church um, that throws their arms open to anybody no matter what is going wrong in their life, but that also with that same love steps into the lives of people who say that they're believers and yet live in rebellion. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us. Help us to be a church that is faithful, that loves you. Lord, there, we, we all struggle with things to one degree or another. And God, I pray that, that you would help us to love you, to live faithfully, that we would have the blessings that come from being people that are obedient. And God, we need help. There are so many discouraging things in life. I pray that we, we would be a church that builds people up, that loves people, that encourages people, that supports, that helps And, Lord, that we would be a church that has a great testimony in our community because we're loving and because we're faithful and because we deal with our sin the way you tell us we should. In your name, amen.